All things are symbols. The external shows of nature have their image in the mind, as flowers and fruits and falling of the leaves. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank you all for listening and joining me this week. Uh, any newcomers, welcome, and of course, returning guests, thank you as always. Now, um, I've been very happy with the reception of last week's episode. It was, it, it's really kind of done really well, especially compared to the last uh, one or two. Um, but this one's, the last one was very popular, at least when it comes to Europe. So, thank you all for listening in such high numbers. And on that uh, note, I don't have too much in the way of corrections for that, at least not yet. Um, I haven't uh, received any like negative or like questioning feedback on that one just yet. So if you did have some questions on that one or this one, please let me know. Um, so let's go ahead and proceed along in our overview of humanity in Western Europe, circa 8,000 to 6,000. BC, BCE. Um, now, first, there are a couple of points about the Mediterranean islands that I wanted to kind of expand on. Uh, I know I had mentioned that pottery got to a couple of those places, um, but I wanted to dive in specifically on the nature of these islands um, as the pottery is arriving. Uh, and I, I kind of felt like they deserved their own little section. So that's what this is. <clears throat> um, now, Sicily is very similar to mainland Italy in terms of the um, lifestyle of the you know, Mesolithic hunter-gatherers. Um, though I was able to read about an innovation that appears to emerge as kind of an independent uh, event uh, or independent style. Uh, that evolves in a couple of places in the northwest of the island. And this emerges actually in between 10,000 to 8,000 BC. It, it could have happened before this season. But there are a couple of sites in the northwest where you have rock art, and it is very much focused solely on humans and uh, the human form. And you see a vast drop of... Um, uh, depictions of these large animals which makes sense they're not they're not there anymore like the large uh, herds and things like that they they begin to disappear of course you still have some animal depictions but generally you're you're seeing more like individual animals deer uh birds that kind of thing so this is this change is being reflected in the art that's being made at this time which if you remember all those episodes ago, uh, last um, year before, um, we talked about how a lot of the theories around the um, paintings of the animals being kind of a shamanistic kind of painting these animals to draw their spirits out in the spirit world so that they would appear to you in the physical world. Um, you know, if you stop seeing these animals, you know, you can imagine that if that is the case, at least partly, even if it's just, you know, part of the reason they're making these paintings, um, you know, it's going to cause a lot of consternation. 
and this might help explain kind of the breakdown of these epigravidian sites. Um, you know, the shamanistic practices may not be enough to hold groups together, or they may cause group groups to completely just try to, you know, come up with a new set of um, beliefs, um, or maybe uh, re-emphasize smaller beliefs to become more important. It's possible that, you know, it's obviously not going to go away all at once overnight, but it's possible that the depiction of the animal may become much less primary focus than, say, a um, depiction of the human or, you know, partaking in other rituals that don't leave a trace uh, that are more in line with uh, balancing humans' place in the world as opposed to balancing the human and the animal in the world together. Um, but those are just, you know, some small thoughts and theories about that kind of thing. Um, and I forget the name of the places. I, I did not write them down. I believe the one that I saw that was the oldest was Adadura, uh, Adadura who I believe was the site in Sicily. Um, and, of course, we talked about how, you know, the cardia, uh, cardium part, part ugh, the pottery that we talked about last weekend, the cardium uh, shell pottery, uh, begins to show up in parts of Sicily. And that will, of course, begin to expand out. But in terms of tools and things like that, as far as I could tell, Sicily is very similar to mainland Italy. Now, uh, we will go a little bit further to the south of Sicily, uh, and then we're going to get to the island of Malta. Uh, now, Malta is only possibly occupied during our season, um, but uh, the earliest piece of evidence that we have for Homo sapien habitation of the islands doesn't confirm that humans were there until around 5,900 to 5,800. And it appears that these people are all heavily influenced by seafarers uh, from... Uh, you know, the, the places to the east that we've talked about the last couple of seasons. So uh, it's possible that, you know, people trying to make a journey around the boot of Italy to get to someplace like uh, Sicily uh, may have gotten blown off course and they ended up on Malta and they ended up, you know, began to live there or visit there before they developed like this local uh, society but that does not happen this season that is something that happens much later now then we have Corsica and Sardinia um, and these of course have been occupied by Homo sapiens for a while and even earlier hominids had you know been on those islands possibly as far back as 450,000 years ago uh, you know, it could have been like the pre-Neanderthals or some form of Homo erectus. Uh, but the oldest complete modern human skeleton dates to around 7,000 BC, and this is on Sardinia. And in that uh, human's burial and in areas close to it, you do see a really nice mix of Neolithic and Mesolithic technologies and tools and artifacts. So, um, you know, you can begin to see uh, signs of pottery showing up at that kind of time period. But, you know, the Mesolithic peoples are not gone. They're still there. 
So it's possible they may have been uh, trade partners, or they may have been welcoming in these newcomers who are bringing this you know new technology. Uh, you know, it could have been a small number to begin with, and you know they welcomed them in, and then later these other people show up, and eventually the original inhabitants are outnumbered, uh, but they're not violently replaced, or maybe they were. It's it's hard to say. Again, this is just one of those things we don't have a lot of evidence on. Um, but, uh, again, Sardinia, really nice mix of, um, you know, the, the Neolithic and Mesolithic traditions. And that's true in Corsica as well. Um, but that being said, um, this begins a very long period of time, uh, on the islands and it covers a number of different material and social, uh, cultures. Uh, this is known as the pre-Nur, uh, excuse me, the pre-Nur Agic period, uh, and um, the, when we get, talk about the Nur Agic period, this is a term based on some of the um, Mesolithic, or excuse me, the um, monumental structures that are built on the island. Uh, but this is a much later period, and they'll go through several different um, successive cultures on the island that will eventually. Uh, culminates into what is known as the Nuragic period. Now, and the, one of the big reasons Sardinia was probably a huge draw in this early, earlier period is because of the obsidian found on the island. And this, of course, becomes a major important trade commodity uh, before uh, the Bronze Age, and even during it. I'm sure it was a supplemental um, material uh, along with everything else you could find on the island. But um, there are a number of places, of course, in Italy and Sicily uh, that you can get um, uh, obsidian from. Uh, but due to Sardinia's position, you know, it's a very good uh, north-south. You can either travel directly north to get to the coast of what is now southern France... Or you can just travel south to get to the coast of northern uh, Africa. So you might not have to worry, um, you know, about you know, circling Italy to get to Asia to find trade partners. You have some very close by options. And not even to mention, you could, of course, continue to sail west into uh, the Iberian region. Um, whereas those other places in Italy, you know, they might have good overland routes or they might be more interested in trading with um, peoples to the east. Um, and this is one of the big factors we'll talk about when we talk about um, long scale or um, long distance and large scale trade. Uh, but Sardinia, very important for a number of reasons uh, that we will get to later. Uh, now there's also the island, uh, excuse me, the island of Pentelaria, um, which that is also known as Kosira uh, or Kosura, uh, if you're depending on your dialect of Greek. Uh, that's a very small island to the south um, west of Sicily. Uh, it's about halfway between Sicily and the tip of North Africa, so. Um, whereas Malta is kind of to the south east of uh, Pentelaria, but Pentelaria is a lot smaller. 
so it's not quite as well known and it's not quite as important but i think obsidian can be found there too however uh, from what i can tell no one lived there at this point in time and that is true as well as uh for the balearic islands uh which are these three kind of islands uh, off the um east coast of uh spain um Mallorca is, I think, the largest of those. Um, those do not become occupied until, I want to say it's like 3,000-ish BC. So we we may not even get to them next season. That's something that we'll have to, that I'll have to figure out. So um, those are the big Mediterranean islands um, that uh, kind of deserve their own special mention. Now, uh, we are going to continue back to the mainland of Western Europe. And uh, like the last two weeks, we started in the south, and um, we will continue to do so and begin to make our way to the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, And we will, of course, begin with a little bit of etymology. Now, of course, Iberia is from the Latin Iberia, Uh, which itself came from uh, an ancient Greek word, which was Iberia, or Iberia, maybe a little bit more. Pardon my my Greek pronunciation, it's not very good. Uh, But this this word came from a river known as Iberos, um, which is possibly from a a people who lived along... um, that river uh so it's unclear if the name comes from the people or the river uh, but the celt iberian name was uh, iber or and of course in spanish this is the modern ebro um now interestingly enough and i'm not going to dive into too much of this now because it's like this big thing and <laughs> it's very confusing and complicated but um there was an uh, an identical name It was also given to a people in the Caucasus, in what is now Georgia. So, um, we'll get into how this happens later, um, but it's possible that they're both Indo-European related and that it's something to do with, um, well, we'll get into it later because it's it's really complicated and I don't want to just you know, get off track for too long. But yes, um, uh, Iberia is a name for a people uh, who gave their name to a river, and then the Greeks used that river uh, name to describe the region, and eventually it came to mean everything basically south of the Pyrenees. So that's where it comes from. There you go. (laughs) Um, Now, uh, last uh, season when we talked about this region... We went into detail on the Azilian culture. Uh, now this uh, spread through uh, northern Spain, southern France, and it's breaking up right around the time this season starts. Um, now you may remember the Azilian were fairly, you know, well known for their kind of uh, small painted pebbles. Um, I talked about, or at least I mentioned how that there are some people who claim that this was a form of writing and that they used this to convey like a written information. Um, 
Now, uh, of course, that's just one theory. Not everyone subscribes to this. In fact, I'd say most people don't. And even if it was a writing system, uh, unfortunately, there's no way for us to have any way of uh, deciphering it or being able to understand what it means just because, of course, where all these stones have been found, all of the other, you know, evidence or... um, context has been just lost to time so sadly um we don't know what these were for if anything they could get just been types of decoration i'm sure that they had a purpose aside from that um but i doubt it was any form of complex writing system i don't think there was any need to invent anything like that uh at this point in time uh which as we'll find out uh, writing is almost always an answer to some type of large-scale need. Uh, but we'll we'll return to that uh, type of discussion in the future. For now, though, uh, we should move on to the kind of advancement uh, of these uh, peoples outside of, um, or as the Azelian fades away. Um, now... Why this happens is hard to say. Um, I know we talked about um, climate change being very radical, uh, and it was. However, this region, like southern or like southeastern Europe and uh, Italy, um, did not deal with the worst of the um, the climate change uh, going south of the Pyrenees. You're, you're probably running into very similar climate throughout, um, you know, all of that, uh, all of the Younger Dryas. Um, but that being said, it's very possible that there were more people um, coming south or maybe coming from the sea. Who knows? Uh, it's also possible that with the retreat of the ice caps that there were groups in the former Azilian territory that wanted to go north and explore and see what, you know, what the ice had left uh, or what the retreating ice had left behind. Uh, All of these are kind of uh, valid theories until we ever get a definitive answer, which I doubt we will. Uh, But the Azilian, for the most part, are replaced by... um, uh, well, not necessarily replaced, but uh, you also see, uh, I guess, an emergence of a secondary group from the Azelian, and this is referred to as the Asturian. Now, the Asturian are a little bit more of a mystery uh, compared to the Azelian. Uh, we don't have any kind of art for them. Uh, they don't appear to have been interested in making art anywhere close to... Uh, what the Azelian did. But what we do have for them is something very similar to a pickaxe. Uh, it's made from kind of a quartzite cobblestone, and they averaged about eight and a half centimeters in length, and one end was pointed, uh, but they didn't use it to mine stone. It showed that they were, you know, used more for. Uh, detaching um, limpets uh, from uh, where they had uh, sunk themselves into. And limpets are kind of like a snail's um, 
things like that. So they're, they're kind of gastropod. And they were essentially using these uh, these cobbles to kind of uh, farm up uh, limpets from uh, the rivers and the, the ponds that they were living in. Uh, they also had bone tools and, you know, other types of uh, bladed stones. Uh, and they were, um, but these are... These are not nearly as well founded as the pickaxes are. Uh, we do have a lot of shell middens uh, in these um, in their sites. They're very similar to the types of shell midden, uh, shell middens found in Azelian sites, but uh, they're they're kind of um, made up, or they have a lot of different stones. I think in those kind of trash uh, piles. Uh, so you have a lot of the same types of food, but the, the types of stone used to make tools is a little bit different. Uh, the Azelian had a lot of flint, whereas the Asturian appears to just mostly rely on uh, quartzite, whereas the Azelian don't appear to have any quartzite at all. Um, so it has been put forward that it's possible that the Asturian, uh, what we found for them is not even um, where they were living primarily. That this uh, this type of uh, coastal sites that you find that are Sturian are actually kind of a seasonal, um, I guess, occupation point. Uh, that they were just coming there during specific types of the year or maybe every couple of years to kind of... Um, uh, you know, exploit a different resource rather than having to uh, exploit where you would prefer to live permanently. Uh, the seafood they think it was exploited in late winter and early spring, you know, when other food is very scarce. So um, that is one theory about the uh, Asturian. Also, they're very further to the west of the Azelian, uh, so they're they're not in the same range one-to-one. There's a little bit of overlap, but by and large there is also a difference. Uh, you also find a lot of other fish. It's not just shellfish. They're also fishing as well. Um, in fact, I think some of the places they've found over 20 different types of uh, some type of fish species. So um, if they were fishing seasonally, they needed a lot of it in this uh, less... Um, uh, warmer period of the year. Um, they were also hunters of deer. That shouldn't be a surprise. Um, red deer still fairly um, extant in the region. Uh, and of course you have other types of deer. Boar, uh, wild aurochs, and even there are still some ibex. Uh, you know those wild type sheep or uh, wild uh, goats are also being hunted. Um, it's also a very wooded area. I think it'd probably be a little bit more wooded than you would expect to see today in the area, uh, which also helps keep the deer population happy and in the region. Um, and this this culture will persist for a while longer. I think um, I think the latest it could have been is about four thousand five hundred. So it, it'll still be in place uh, when we return. Uh, for the future. Now, in terms of, uh, I guess, moving north from the old Azelian uh, 
stopping grounds, you get to the, um, uh, it's the Salter, uh, this is where one of my pronunciation problems is going to come in, uh, French, Salvatarian, uh, is the name of one of these, uh, kind of late Mesolithic cultures in Europe, uh, and this is, uh, mainly in France, it's, it's kind of north of the Pyrenees, um, I don't think they find any of these sites in uh, the old Azelian area, um, but it's possible that they were. It's just we haven't found the evidence. Just keep that in mind. Um, and it is probably emerging right towards the end of our um, current time frame, uh, right around 6,500, give or take. Possibly, yeah. Um, so, um, it is uh, very much through Western Europe. Uh, found a couple of different places. Um, I think it comes from uh, a specific um, type site in uh, it's the French. Uh, it's uh, Lot et Garonne. Uh, it's uh, in the southwestern part of France, but it's all throughout um, that that region. And these people are beginning to practice that Neolithic uh, tool assemblages. They have the microliths. Um, they do a lot of stuff with um, um, you know, smaller than they are or um, narrower than they are longer type blades. So again, that's something that shows that they have definitely shifted away from the kind of um, the large game that you would find in the Middle Ages. They're beginning to look and uh, work for uh, smaller animals, uh, waterfowl, things like that. Um, they also have their own type of ritual burial. Now, um, unfortunately, most of the information on that uh, comes from a paper by uh, Nicholas Valderian. Uh, it is in French. Uh, I cannot read French. It was published in 2008. Um, you could read all about it if you spoke French. Uh, my translations of it are uh, spotty to say the least. And all I know is that uh, he believes it was a highly ritualized and highly... Um, trying to use the correct term uh very formal uh burial this wasn't something that they would just drop someone in a hole you know put some artifacts in there with them and say goodbye he, he believes that this was a um uh, a very in-depth uh process um i believe uh, he mentions red ochre being involved which that's a very old thing that is not at all you know stuck in europe there are a number of places all across the world where red ochre is used in kind of a, a burial uh, type situation. And we'll talk about some of those in other places. But um, yeah, it's uh, uh, I'm going to try and translate a little bit more. Um, but it was done by Hal Open Science, I think is the publication. And um, the title is Salvatarian et Salvatariano. Uh, 
and then there's a much longer um, uh, kind of um, uh, subheading under that. Uh, but he also mentions North Italy as being part of this culture as well. In fact, it could have spread all throughout uh, Western Europe. It could have gone up onto the Atlantic coast, even maybe parts of um, uh the modern day Belgium and uh, Netherlands, and it's not even into Europe or Germany. Um, and this will continue to last till about 4,500. So it's a long lasting culture. I've got some time to do some more research, but this is something that begins again to emerge right towards the end of our time frame. After the Azelian has vanished, it, this is probably an offshoot of them. Um, now, you also have another uh, group known as the uh, Boronian, or in some places this is referred to as the Tardino excuse me, Tardinoisian culture. Uh, it is also considered an Mesolithic uh, culture, and this is found mostly in northern France and Belgium. Uh, it does not show up in the south. Uh, so they probably were interacting quite a bit with the Salvatarian, uh, excuse me. Um, and uh, it was, um, excuse me. Um, now, it is also an offshoot of the Arin, excuse me, Arinsbergian, who we talked about last week, and of course in the episode on the Younger Dryas in Europe, 10,000 BC. Um, they were also uh, beginning to experiment with the microliths uh, of the, um, like the uh, other cultures. So they, they're beginning to develop their own tools, their own Neolithic traditions. Uh, and most of these places were probably going to get there eventually. However, uh, as we will talk about, forces from Anatolia and further east are kind of speeding this process up one way or the other. Um, so uh, you also find a much wider variety in terms of shapes in the Tardinosian. Uh, they have um, uh, trapezoids. Also, they have... Um, much smaller flint blades that are used they're using a different technique to shape flint uh, they have uh, more types of triangular blades that you'll see they're they're not necessarily um you know kind of all made the same way so they're, they're experimenting a lot in terms of how they're creating their tools um and these people are probably also in parts of south Eastern Britain. Um, I haven't talked about it too much, but um, of course there is a period of time where uh, the island of Britain is connected to Western Europe via land bridge. Uh, this is known as Doggerland. Um, most people believe that by 6000 BC uh, this land bridge has completely collapsed. It is now all underwater. However, there is some new evidence, and it is being argued and being debated, uh, but it's possible that this land bridge does not close 
until as late as I think 5,300 ish, 5,500 ish. Um, it, it's being debated again. It it's um, I even saw one uh, source say it could have been as late as like 4,000 BC. Now I don't think that's correct in any case. I don't think anyone is widely accepting that date. Uh, I think there's too much um, too much counterclaim. But that's not to say that you know the coast isn't maybe a lot shorter than it is now. It, it could be that there were fluctuations in the in the uh, I guess in that area uh, that would have made made it a little bit shorter of a journey. Um, but uh, yeah, that's something that they're dealing with all throughout um, the coast of uh, Western Europe. And uh, when we say that it's um, you know still connected, it's not connected. Even the people saying it's you know 3800 BC, they're not saying it's the same way it was in the Younger Dryas. They're just saying that there's this small little land bridge. It's uh, you know, it's slowly getting flooded. Um, it would essentially be the part of Britain that uh, is connected to... It would be connected to what is now uh, Belgium. Uh, it's just a very small strip of land. Uh, there would still be a, like a, a formation of the English Channel uh, between uh, Cornwall and Brittany. Um, you would not have like a, a full land bridge. The English Channel would be there. It just wouldn't go all the way through is essentially what they're saying. Um, but uh, it, it, it may not even be as far uh, west as Belgium. It could just be that little, uh, you know, connection between Dover and Calais. Uh, it could have been just that narrow of a land bridge. But again, that's all uh, currently being heavily debated, and I don't know enough about uh, uh, geography uh, or, you know, uh, environmental sciences to really weigh into heavily. I'm thinking it's more likely, you know, the the six thousand or like the fifty eight hundred, uh, kind of at the latest. That that's my personal opinion. Um, but um, you know, we'll see. Uh, there's there's always new evidence getting turned up. Maybe they'll find like a bunch of like submerged Mesolithic settlements like right in the middle of. <laughs> The, the English Channel one day and all the tools, um, but we'll we'll have to we'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, let's see here, how far in this are we? Ooh, uh, about thirty minutes, give or take. Okay. Um. Well, uh, let's see. I. Uh, all right, well, um, I think this is probably a good place to call it. Um, next week we will return. Uh, we'll talk about the specifics of uh, prehistoric uh, Great Britain, uh, what they, what has changed since the 10,000 BC uh, uh, episode. Uh, and we'll also talk about Ireland. Uh, I think there's a little bit more to talk about uh, than the last time. Uh, I think uh, that there's probably finally permanent human habitation on the island to really dive into. And uh, that'll give us a nice little um, uh, 
a nice little uh, um, bow tie to this part of the of the uh, of the season. Um, and then, of course, we'll start our um, bonus episodes. I'm planning on doing some more like regular ones during this period. So these episodes will actually seem more like bonus episodes. They're not going to be, um, you know, taking the place of all of my regular episodes. That's not to say there won't be a week or two where we just have the bonus episode. Um, but it's not going to be just those and no history, at least this year. Uh, I think I've got my subjects down, uh, but if you do have a suggestion, let me know. Um, it might be something I could work in um, you know, next season or um, just one that I would do naturally because I, I do need uh, breaks off from the normal stuff every now and then. Um, so, yeah, just keep that in mind. Um, thank you all for uh, dropping by this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, please let me know. Uh, you can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can also contact me at uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, I will have the link to my uh, Twitter in the uh, episode description. You can direct message me there. You can also comment on any of my videos on YouTube. It does not matter to me. Whatever you would like to do. Do, I would be happy to hear from you and get again any kind of uh, positive feedback or criticism. Uh, I'd be um, I'd be happy to hear. So um, thank you all. I hope you have a good rest of your day and rest of your week. Thank you all. Goodbye.